Well, so much for getting any credit for this in heaven. There went that one. Got too much credit on earth already. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Wow, that was great worship tonight. Good job, Brian and team. Yeah, Mariah. Jesus. Wow. Well, Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now. Just to have a good time. Hmm. We want to just synergize with heaven tonight. Lord, we just pray right now that you would just come, you would touch people, that you would meet them right where they're at. But Lord, that you wouldn't leave them there. <laughs> yes, Lord. Agitate people. Wow, you know, some of you, I just had this word, it's not, nothing. I don't think it's anything to do with what I'm going to share tonight, but, you know, adversity, someone once said, adversity is the mother of invention. And uh, I just felt like some of you are going through a time that's, you feel like there's tons of adversity, but the Lord, oftentimes adversity is what releases us into a new uh, purpose and destiny. And... Uh, Somebody said a long time ago, I, I wrote it down years ago in my Bible, the greater the destination, the longer the gestation. And um, I really believe that that's true in a lot of people's cases, that sometimes um, the process, we get frustrated with the process. And I just feel like this, is, this, isn't, this isn't my message tonight, but I feel like there's people in here that you're, you're getting, um, maybe, maybe you're losing... Uh, confidence or courage in the process and I just really want to encourage you that the Lord knows what he's doing and it's uh, the process how many know the the journey is as important as the destination and it's amazing once you get someplace like as soon as you find your destination how many know you don't get to stay there very long before you're on another journey so I don't mean we're wandering that's not a good plan wandering's not good but um I just, I just want to say to, uh, to you that are in here that, you know, the journey has seemed long and purposeless at times. Um, all you need to do is renew your vision. You know, without a vision, the people perish, but happy is who keeps the law. And when you have a vision, how many know that when you don't have a vision, you spend your whole life trying to either stay out of pain or find pleasure? I mean, you know, he's not talking about the law of Moses there. He says, without a vision, the people perish or go unrestrained. In fact, I think it's the Phillips translation that says, without a prophetic vision, people go unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. I don't believe he's talking about the law of Moses there. I believe he's talking about the law of restraint. That when we have a vision, we restrain our options to capture our vision. Because it, it really is vision that gives our pain a purpose. And so if you're going through... Uh, uh, in your life a struggle and, and you seem to have um, you know you seem to be getting discouraged I want to propose to you that you've lost sight of what the, pro what the purpose for the process sometimes we lose sight of the purpose for the process Are we, who might am, am I, just raise your hand if you're spe specifically in that category and I'm speaking to you Good. that makes you feel a little better I'm like 
some people are like, I don't have a clue what he's talking about, but I hope I never know. <laughs> go through that time. Yeah. I think we've all been there at one time in our life where, you know, it's like we're going through this process. And I think that's why the Lord said, don't, um, um, what, uh, I forget the, what I, <laughs> he said something, no, and it's in the Bible. <laughs> and if you read it, you'll find it. <laughs> so, did I finish my prayer? I don't remember. Let me finish my prayer. Sorry. You know, I have this deal about people preaching in their prayer. It's like, I can't tell if they're talking to God or talking to me, but they're telling God everything He already knows. And it drives me crazy. So when I start to pray, and then I get all this download about things I know God already knows, not that He, I guess He knows everything I was going to say. Forget that. Anyway, so Holy Spirit, we just ask that You would just touch people tonight, and that that tonight would be a catalyst to people's destiny, to their desires, and to their sense of purpose in life. In Jesus' name. This morning I heard something. I, I think I prayed it in first service. But um, I woke up this morning and oftentimes, I don't know why this is exactly, but um, I don't know if I dream, dream things that when I wake up I, I, they come to me as memories. Or I, I, just don't, I just honestly, just to be totally transparent I'm not really sure but I wake up with a phrase in my mind probably two days out of seven and this morning I woke up with this phrase develop a catalytic culture now I don't know if I dreamt about it or if I came awake and it just popped you know obviously when you wake up first thing in the morning I don't know maybe some of you are morning people that isn't me I, I haven't figured out what people I am I'm an afternoon person or a deep late at night person but, uh, but uh, in the morning, I'm, I'm like, I'm not really a, a thinker at all, in the morning especially. And, and when, I, when I wake up with a, I think Bill calls it like a one thought, a thought that's better than your own. I woke up this morning with that in my mind. I'm like, I don't know if I, if I dreamt that or if I just thought it when I came all the way awake. But as, uh, as the morning started to unfold, I started feeling like, well, this is really the word of the Lord. However it came, this is really the word of the Lord that we need to develop a catalytic culture. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, um, I actually found some notes of, of uh, a time when I, I taught something about being a catalyst. And let me just uh, tell you that there is a difference between um, being a catalyst, being a catalytic culture, and being a synergistic culture. And just for the sake of a little explanation, um, let me just give you uh, a word. I did this word study, this is just, um, I think, out of Webster's or something. It says, synergy is defined as working together, the working together of two more things, people or organization, especially when the result is greater than the sum of their individual effects or capacity. Um, the phenomena of which the combined action of two things, for example, uh, drugs or muscles, is greater than the sum of the effects individually. So the, the synergy just simply means that when two of us work together, our output is greater than what we can do individually. So if we can produce, if I can produce two widgets and Danny can produce two widgets, um, when, we, when we work together, we would, if we had synergy, we wouldn't expect to produce four. We'd expect, expect to produce five, six, seven, or whatever the center, depending on what kind of, what, how much synergy there is. We would, we would expect for us to be able to produce more together than we could individually. And so that's synergy. 
But uh, a catalyst is something uh, different than that. A catalyst, and I wrote this down some time ago, a catalytic environment adds the missing ingredient to the lives of people so that in addition to being synergistic, it is pro, it's procreative in that it produces things that could never have been birthed outside of the environment. A catalyst is an agent that when added to an existing environment brings change without the catalyst itself being altered. And so l let me just explain that simply. The difference between synergy and a catalyst is that when you're in a catalytic culture, you, you don't produce more of the same things, but you produce things in a catalytic culture that you couldn't produce otherwise. Did you get that? Okay, you're all looking at me like that. Look, okay. Does that look mean I didn't describe it or that you got it? So, when you come into a catalytic culture, you, you actually, things, things come out of you that you didn't maybe even know were in you. Because without the catalyst, it's not like you're producing XYZs and I'm producing XYZs and when we get together, we produce more of them. But it's like when you get into a catalytic culture, you start to produce things that you've never ever been able to produce before. Are you with me? And, um, and I, and I want to talk a little bit about that tonight because I think that that's part of... Um, what it is, part of what we're moving to in this whole apostolic age is that we are a catalyst. And I say we, I'm talking about the church. That the church is to become a catalyst to society so that society can produce something that society cannot produce without our influence. Eleven, if you will, in the middle of an environment. But I want to talk just a little bit about individual catalysts. And, um, and I want to say this, that first of all, that, you, that we are called, we are each called to be callous to people, people's lives, both individually and corporately. And how many of you know that your place in heaven is secure? It's your place in history that's in question. And God wants you to have a place in history. He wants you to be a catalyst to history so that history becomes His story. Come on, can anybody say Amen. <laughs> Somebody once wrote, Some people bring joy wherever they go. Some people bring joy whenever they go. <laughs> the goal is to bring joy whenever you, wherever you go. Come on. I, um, I had a meeting with somebody. This is a, a, long, a long time ago, but it really impacted me. And I was, I was having some... Well, actually, this person was actually having a struggle with me, which I know is very difficult to believe. <laughs> Besides Bill, and we've already confessed that already. This person was having a struggle with me, and so, um, you know, I, uh, Danny and I had this conversation. He said, well, you know, you should meet with him and talk through it with him. And, and so I did that. So we sat down and we talked, and, and we had a really good conversation. You know, I, I heard what they... What they you know how they were feeling and how I was affecting them, and and um, I got to interact with that. And it was—I don't know how to ex exactly put words to this. I know that we've probably most of us have experienced this. The conversation was really well, went really well. It was cordial. Everyone—they um, um, said what they needed to say. I said what I needed to say. Um, I felt like there was good understanding. The meeting went perfect. There was only one struggle that. It's hard to put into words. But when I looked into their eyes, I felt like the issue was not solved. I, I, that's, I, don't, I don't know how else to explain it, but that everything looked fine. I walked out of my office when they left, 
And I walked into Danny's office, and he said, well, how'd it go? I said, well, it went good, and I told him what happened. I said, there's just one struggle that I have. And he said, what is it? I said, I can look in their eyes, and I can tell you that whatever is wrong is not solved. And he asked me a question that sent me like, like he does. Takes me like two months to figure it out. I don't know if they're like little riddles or... You know the problem with Danny is I don't think like him at all. So he needs to change. But what I'm finding is that when I get around him, it's not him who changes. Like he tends to be a catalyst for, for a new way of thinking, a different way of thinking for me. So he said, so I'm having this conversation. Danny's doing what Danny does. I mean, he's just this amazing uh, listener, which I'm, I'm learning how to do that too. Like sometimes he listens so well, I think he's in a trance. I'm like... I'm like, uh, you all right? He's like, yeah, I'm listening. I'm like, oh, that's what you do when you listen. Because typically what happens when I listen is like this moves and these work at the same time. It's called multitasking. So I get a lot more done. Because while you're talking, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to say. I don't know if that's called listening, really. But anyway, actually, all that was funny. So if anyone... So anyway, so we're in... So, supposed to be. So we're standing in his office, and he's listening to me like he always does. And I'm kind of like, you know, I'm, not, I'm trying to explain to him, like I do oftentimes, about something that... I get information a lot, but it doesn't come in words. So I'm trying to, like, dialogue with him over this issue. And he asked me a question. He said, did they feel powerful when they left their, your office? Did they feel powerful? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't ask him. He said, did they feel powerful when they left your office? I said, I don't know. Well, he said, well, you said that you empowered them. So? <laughs> he said, well, if you empowered them, then they should have left your office feeling powerful. <laughs> really? <laughs> Well, <laughs> shoot. <laughs> so that's what that word means. <laughs> sort of screwed me up for the day, like some of his advice does. So I had to like re so 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 he said that you know and and the thing is he doesn't laugh so it makes me crazy like I think he means it that people are supposed to feel powerful when they leave my office I think he believes that so I'm like all right whatever so I went back and I and I sat in my chair and I thought well did they feel powerful I thought well. Well, probably not, because that wasn't one of my goals. <laughs> I, mean, I thought we were supposed to like understand each other, feeling powerful. I don't know if that was really part of like what I was trying to accomplish. And so, um, and I just, and I was just thinking, and uh, I started to just, inter- you know, talk to the Lord about that. I'm like, that was really the word of the Lord, that when people get into our presence, 
that one of our goals should be, and I mean, there are probably some exceptions, but one of our goals should be that people feel powerful when they're around us. How do we know that we're becoming a catalyst to people's destiny? When people leave us, when they leave our presence, they feel empowered. They feel more powerful than when they came. You know, some people, you know, there's, we're supposed to give each other grace, but I find that sometimes when I'm learning, and, and I, I'm not kidding about this, sometimes I disgrace people. Now, I'm not talking about disgracing in the normal way that you would think of, well, I'm disgracing somebody. I, I think I'm working, I think I worked through most of that. I mean that somehow instead of giving people grace, I took it from them. Do you know what I'm saying? And, um, and, I, and encourage, like sometimes when people come into our presence, we need to encourage them and, I've, and not discourage, not take courage from them. And so, um, and one, one of the things I just want to just begin with is that in order for us to be a catalytic culture, first of all, we have to be catalytic individuals. And that means that when people actually, when they encounter us, when they encounter us, they feel more powerful when they, when they encounter us than they did before they encountered us. That they actually feel like they can, they actually get, you know, Paul said, as Bill was talking about this morning, he said, there is, um, there is an obedience. I don't know how, exactly how he said this, but Paul, Paul said this. He said that his apostolic call was to bring people to the obedience of faith. And so we used, to be, we used to have to obey the law, but how many of you know that now we're supposed to obey faith? Do you understand that? Like, I am supposed to be true to what I believe. Come on, help me. I'm supposed to be true. Paul's, one of Paul's apostolic uh, intentions was that people would be true, that they would be obedient to faith. And so what happens when, people, when I encounter people is that what's supposed to happen is that they're supposed to feel more, more encouraged, more full of grace. Maybe, um, I don't know if the words will all be right, but when they leave me, they should feel like they could do it if they didn't feel like they could do it before. And if they felt like they could do it before, they should feel even more convinced that whatever it is that God's called them to do, and how many you know if God's called you to do it, it's bigger than you. That when they encounter me, when they encounter you, they should feel more powerful than when than before they met with me. And, um, and, and so I, I think that's a real practical way to say, like, are you bringing out the best in people? Are you, are you, you know, it says, Proverbs says, the plans of a man are like deep waters. Or I think one version says like deep wells. But a man of understanding draws them out. Are you a catalyst to people's destiny? Do you draw out things in people that are locked up? Um, um, uh, Song of Solomon, I think it's chapter 4, says, My sister, my daughter, is a spring locked up. And I, I, there, there, I think that one of the things that we are to be to each other is we are to be the person who uncaps the wells, the life springs that the Holy Spirit has entrusted to us and somehow they get covered over, whether they're supposed to be covered over for a season or whether we get disillusioned and discouraged and, and disenfranchised or however it happens in our life that there are things below the surface that are trying to like spring up. We used to sing that old song, Spring Up, Oh Well. And somebody needs to come along and be a catalyst to, and to uncorking or digging, redigging the wells of my heart. And I want to talk a little bit about that today and um, turn to Acts chapter um, 9. 
Acts chapter 9. I wrote in my journal, I was just looking through my journal the other day, today actually and yesterday. Sometimes I just like to take an hour or so just to read through my journal. and It's amazing what the Lord is dealing with you. I don't know, I keep journal, I don't write in it very often. Maybe I, Sometimes I write in it every day and sometimes I don't write in it for a month. So depending on how I'm feeling, I used to write in it when I was really depressed. And then um, I picked up one of my old journals. This is true. I, Kathy found it. We were, we were cleaning out the closet. And she goes, oh, here's your old journal. And I opened my journal and, oh, my God. And I realized that the only time I wrote my journal in my early days is when I was trying to, um, <laughs> I was trying to like, work my way out of something. So I would write about it in my journal. And it's interesting because I wrote in the beginning of this, this journal is for my children. Then I thought, you know, if my children read this journal, they would think that I lived a depressed life. Because I was like, this is the way I was like externally processing is I would write it out in my journal. But um, I, I, I don't do that too much anymore. But I was just reading through my journal, and it's amazing how the Lord deals with you in certain things in certain seasons and, um, and, how, um, and that, how that makes an impression on you. Anyway, I, was just, <laughs> I wrote this question down, um, I don't know, it was about it two years ago. Ask yourself the question, if everyone in the world behaved like me, would the world be better off or worse off? Well, that's a great question right there. Ask yourself the question, if everyone behaved just like me, would the world be better off? Some people are like, hmm. <laughs> would the world be better <laughs> Never mind, I said it, you got it. <laughs> Acts chapter 9. <laughs> Gosh. Um, let's go to verse 19. For several days he was uh, speaking, this is of Paul. This is about Paul's, this is when he's still Saul, he's just got saved. For several days Paul was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who were called on his, who called on his name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them be, uh, bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength in confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening of the wall, lowering him into a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with, his, with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. Listen to this, verse 27, key text. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles. <sighs> I don't know why this does this to me. Uh, Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to, him, to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus and how he's with them moving about freely in Jerusalem speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord and he was talking arguing with the Hellenistic Jews and they were attempting to put him to death. 
<clears throat> but when the brethren learned of it, <clears throat> they brought him down to uh, Caesarea and sent him away to Taurus. So the church throughout all Judea and Ju- and I'm sorry, Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is an amazing passage to me because. Uh, We have Barnabas who, as far as we know, well, as far as we know, he never wrote a book of the Bible. Some people believe that he may have wrote the book of Hebrews, but that's not proven. But here's a guy that never wrote a book of the Bible. We don't, we don't know too much about Barnabas except for he was a son of encouragement. He traveled with Paul um, and that he was uh, in one place called a teacher, another place called an apostle. So... Um, but here, the, the church, the, um, the apostles, the twelve apostles, when Paul, when Saul gets saved, of course he's been ravaging you know, the church, he's been t- dragging you know, Christians uh, into prison, he's, uh, he's actually a, uh, uh, ascribed to have killed thousands of Christians. Um, that's, I read a commentary years ago that said that Paul was probably responsible for tens of thousands of Christians' lives. And so this guy is like, he's ravaging the church, and he has this encounter with God in which, you know, the encounter, he gets saved. And a disciple named Ananias meets him. Um, it's kind of interesting. This is a great story. A disciple, listen to this, not an apostle. N- nobody, nobody would have ever known this guy if he hadn't have had this vision. Uh, Ananias is praying, just a disciple, and he has this vision. And in the vision, the Lord says to him, "Listen, there's a man named Saul, and I've just he I I just blinded him, and he's at this address. You know, he's at 1452 Destiny Avenue or something. I mean, he gets the exact street. He gets the exact home the guy's in. He goes, I want you to go there, and I want you to pray for him. And when you do, his, he's going to see. He's blind, but he's going to see." And Ananias says to uh, the Lord, he goes, Hey, I know that guy. <laughs> I'm not going there. That guy, that guy is, he hurts people. And the Lord says, No, he's my disciple. And so anyway, so, the, so uh, Ananias goes to see Saul, prays for him. His eyes are open, lays hands on him, means physical eyes are open, preaches to him the gospel, and Saul comes into the kingdom. Pretty amazing. So Saul's in the kingdom, but he has no connection to the apostles. The apostles are still afraid of him, and obviously he's, you know, they've killed James already, one of the apostles, and so, and so it says this, Barnabas, who's actually, that's not his real name, that's the name that the apostles gave him, because Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas takes a hold of Paul. Now, this is amazing, because where would Paul be if Barnabas hadn't taken a hold of him? If somebody didn't work through their issues and, and, and courageously embrace a person who was, you know, in somewhat of a Hitler to their, to their generation, what would have happened if, Paul, if Barnabas had not embraced Saul? I want to tell you that we wouldn't have had 14 books of the Bible. There would, there would have been how much revelation would have been, would have been lost if one man hadn't seen something in another man, took a risk and took a hold of him and said, I'll be responsible for him. Listen, he didn't just say, hey guys, you know, I like this guy. I heard him preach. He's a good preacher. It says he took a hold of him. 
And as you read the book of Acts, you see that the hold that he had on, on Saul, who would uh, become Paul, the hold that he had with him was not just a casual, like, hey, I like this guy, you know, um, you ought to have him preach, he's got a great testimony. But he actually took a hold of him, and he began to pour his life into Saul. And in fact, if you read, I think it's something like 11 times, and I'm just guessing at that number now, at one point I knew, but it, it's, it's Saul, it was, it, was Paul, it was Barnabas and Saul all through the book of Acts. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas took a hold of Saul. And every place that the two of them are mentioned, it's Barnabas and Saul. And suddenly, Saul gets a name change. Now, what's interesting, we don't know why, it doesn't even tell you why his name got changed. It got changed in a prayer meeting. If God told him to change his name, it's not even listed. But one thing we do know, that the immediately when his name is changed from Saul to Paul, that he's mentioned first from there on. And in, in my mind, he begins to outgrow Barnabas. And it says, and it's, and as soon as his name is changed from Saul to Paul, it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. And I wanted to say to you that there are people born who were born to make other men famous. I think I, I've shared this many times in the last few years, but uh, I was uh, having lunch with uh, Susan Smallwood, who's just a, a wonderful friend that I love very much. She's a prophetess, and we were just having some interaction, and, and I was just sharing with her some things, and she said, you know, I had this word for you about a month ago. And I felt like I was supposed to come here and give it to you. I said, what is it? She said, you were born to make other men famous. You were born to make other men famous. There's something about being a catalyst to other people's destiny. There's something about being in people's lives in a way, listen to this, in a way that they produce things from, by God, by God they could, that they could never produce without you in their life. There's something about getting connected to people in a way that you begin to not just draw out the best in them, that's synergistic, but that you draw out things in them that with, the, with your little bit, it's kind of like, I, you know, the best example I have is resin, because I used to use resin, I used to, um, in the shop I used to use resin a lot. And if you've ever worked with resin, you, you know, like you pour this gallon, you know, let's say you're going to, I don't know, like it comes in gallon cans, you know. And you pour this resin out, just like clear, you know, this is made out of resin. It's just like this clear, it's just clear goo. And you put just a little bit of catalyst in it. I mean, like, when you, the first time you use it, you go, this can't possibly mean anything. And the first couple of times I've, I ever worked with resin, I'm just messing around making stuff. It, I thought, well, you know, if two drops are good, six drops ought to be better. <laughs> And if anyone's ever worked with resin, you know what happens. It gets really hot and it cracks when you put too much in. You're like, woohoo! And if, then I go, well, you know, I, I can't remember if I put two drops in there. Maybe, well, it's all right. If I put one drop in, it'll be fine. And it just never dries. I, I've been to some restaurants. Have you ever been to a restaurant where their tables have, they have resin and, and they're still sticky? It's because somebody didn't put enough catalyst in it and it never completely dried. It will never dry. It doesn't have what it needs to dry. And it's amazing because here, if you, if you ever, it's such a great example if you've actually ever worked with resin because you have all this, this, you know, the actual plastic, you have it all there and you pour literally just a couple of drops. It's like one and a half percent. You just pour a couple drops in there and it is absolutely amazing what happens when you pour the, when you put those, that catalyst in there and it's absolutely amazing what happens if you don't. 
And what I'm getting at is this. Some of us are just, we're just that 2%. We're just that 1.5%. We're like, I, I don't have much. I, yeah, and you know, listen, I'm not being funny right now. It's like, I don't really have much. It, it is amazing what you, when you bring your little bit to people who have a bunch, how it creates in them what... It, it, like, people don't... Bill was talking about not getting recognition today, which just totally kills me because... <laughs> It's every time I hate it. I wish you wouldn't preach on it anymore. It's like Danny's power thing. You know, Bill's talking about, if you weren't here this morning, Bill says, you know, I, I'm reading this article and I'm reading through it. And, and, and it, you know, it, it has, uh, like, it's an article about some place where he ministered with some other folks. And it, when it doesn't mention his name, he gets excited. I'm like, huh, that never happens to me. I'm reading the article to find my name. As a matter of fact, I don't even read the article. I just skip through. <laughs> find out if I'm mentioned in the dang thing. <laughs> Listen, can I, I just need a little help right now. Does anyone else do that at all? Why didn't you confess that when Bill was doing preaching like that? You made me do it all by myself. So it's like, oh, you know, we're, what was I talking about? Catalyst. We become a catalyst to people's destiny, and they create in us things that we could never be without them. And oftentimes, you know, Paul talked about that the members of the body, I read it a, a, sometime, I think it was in the conference, the members of the body that seem, uh, that we deem less honorable are actually more honorable. And the Lord says that those unseemly members, those members who aren't seen, are actually a catalyst to the public ministry of people. And I'll tell you something that I, I am so aware, and I know Bill would say this too, everybody in this place that, that actually has a public ministry, we are so dependent on the prayers. I mean, we have this relationship with God this way, but we are so dependent on the relationship and the prayers and the, the catalyst, catalytic culture that you create for us. I, I can't even tell you, like, there's no way... I know that everything I am is, is about God and about you. I know the first one I'm supposed to say, but it's true. The second one, I don't know that people say that much. But I know that what I am has been molded by who God is and who God is through you would probably be a way we could accept it easy. Like who God is through you has made me who I am. And not just the people in this room, of course, but I'm talking about people. They've been a catalyst to my destiny. And I don't know where I'd be if God didn't use people in my life to bring me. Sometimes they bring me the resin, you know, the ugh. And it's like without them I would have nothing. But other people just bring that 2%. They just bring something that maybe a passing word or I don't know why, but people think that if you have an upfront ministry that you don't need to be encouraged. And they say things like this. They go, you know, I just want to tell you that I thought your book was amazing. I'm sure everyone tells you that. Well, the truth is not everyone tells you that. Not, not everything that people say to you when you're in public ministry is positive. It's shocking, I understand. You know, because to know me is to love me. <laughs> you know what I mean. So, you know, you, you don't, you don't sometimes, sometimes we're not a catalyst to people because we think, oh, you know, what is my little thing? I mean, like, I'm nobody and they don't even know my name. And, you know, and, and we, we don't realize 
that that little bit that you add to somebody's life, and I'm not talking about my life or Bill's life, that's appreciated, of course, but I'm talking about there are lots and lots of people that they just need a touch. They need a word. They just need, they just need you to, to, to encourage them. You know? And I don't know if you're like this, but I, I'm like this at times. It's like sometimes when people have a big old need, whatever, if it's financially, it's real easy to see. They have a big financial need, and I have ten bucks, and they need a million or two or three because we run into people like that all the time. I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to pray for you, but it doesn't dawn on me to take my ten bucks out and give it to them. Because I'm like, that seems, seems stupid. Seems dumb. You know, person, I mean, this happens to me all the time. People come up and go, man, my business is failing and I, I need $1.7 million. Uh, there was something like this. I don't have the number right, but it's in the millions. Not too long ago, but, but a month ago. This guy comes and he's, can you pray for me? And, you know, and I'm thinking, I have $10 in my wallet. I knew I did because I checked for dinner. And I'm thinking, you know, so I'm praying for him. And I'm thinking, you know, if someone walked up and said they needed 20 I wouldn't be embarrassed to give them 10 if all I had was 10 but if they need 1.7 million, it's kind of stupid. And there are people like that, that that are like that in life. It's like they need a 1.7 million dollar miracle. It may not be money. It may be in their emotional life or their, you know, just all the places where we find ourselves in some sort of lack. And it's like I got 10 bucks metaphorically. And it's like, I don't even want to offer my ten bucks because it seems so insignificant. What I don't realize is that what God can do with a boy's lunch. I forget what God can do with a boy's lunch. And I shared this not too long ago, but it probably bears repeating. You know, when Jesus took water and he made it wine, he didn't take nothing and make it wine. He took water and made it wine. It's, it's, it's like oftentimes God requires us to do what we can do before he does what he, what he will do. And you know, when the, the boy, I mean, the little boy had fish and bread. And what did they eat? They ate fish and bread. You know, they didn't have corn. Why didn't they have corn? Because the boy didn't have corn. Follow me. This is, this is simple, but I think it's profound. They didn't have corn because the boy didn't have corn. If the boy would have had corn, they would have had corn. If the boy would have had tacos, they would have had tacos. And all I'm getting at is that God doesn't care what you don't have. He only cares what you have. And if you're anything like me, and I think it's just part of human nature at times, is that when we see, you know, if we see a, a $20 need and we have $10, it doesn't, it doesn't even bother us to give 10 It doesn't bother us to be involved. But if we see a million dollar need and we have $10, it, it, we, we sometimes get overwhelmed by the circumstances and forget that it's, it, it, it's like all I need to do is be a catalyst to heaven. I just need to give my 2%, my 1%, my half a percent, my one-tenth of one-thousandth of a percent, and it's God who does the rest, but He's waiting for me to give what I have. I was reading again the, tonight the story of the Good Samaritan, and he did more than I thought he did, actually. I was going to use it as a great example. It's still a good example. You know how you forget those other parts of the story. I'm the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells a story about a neighbor, you know, the... Pharisee said, or the lawyer says, well, who's his neighbor? You know, I have a question for you. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Who's, who's my neighbor? You know, like, give me addresses of people I can love, you know. Just, you know what I mean? Just, just give me a few people I can actually love, and I'll, I'll do that, and I get to heaven. And Jesus said, well, it tells a story. And, of course, you know, the Samaritans, 
actually the bad guy in the movie. You know, he's the guy nobody likes, the Samaritan half-breeds, you know. But like in our culture, you know, uh, we have ethnic people in, in certain seasons of our culture that are not favored, and that would be the Samaritans. And so Jesus uses the Samaritan, you know, in your face. I love it. He's in your face example. Well, the Samaritan finds this guy beat up that, you know, the, the Pharisee and the scribe crosses the street. The, do you understand the cross the street thing? The Pharisee knows that if he actually comes in contact with this guy, that his conscience will be so convicted if he passes him by. So what's he do? He knows there's a problem over there, so he crosses the street so he doesn't have to let his conscience come on. Some of you need to go to Africa. Some of you need to go to Indonesia. Listen, I'm telling you that this is by the word of the Lord. Some of you need to go to Africa. You need to go to Indonesia. You need to go to, you need to, go to Mexico. You need to go to some of these places. You've been crossing the street. You don't expose yourself to the need because you know that once you get there, that you'll be convicted because you know there's good stuff in there. And you know it will require something of you that will be inconvenient. But I want to tell you, in the midst of inconvenience comes your destiny. I, I know that I have found so much of my purpose in helping other people find their purpose. And it's like, and here's how it feels. This is how it feels. I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't, I don't really want this. I told you this a few months ago. When I, I knew that my father, when he, when he drowned, my, I was three years old, my father drowned. A black family took us in because my father was a football player. My father was a football player. He played football. And in the 50s, that was the only thing that was integrated, ethnically integrated. And so my father's best friend was a black man, lived across the street, down the street from us a little ways. And I played with his, uh, his, his kids were my best friends uh, when I was little. So when my father drowned, this black family took us in. I can still remember it. I still remember living with a black family. And my mother doesn't remember if it was a week or if we lived there for months. She can't remember because of the trauma, how long it was. But I can remember being there. And I knew, and when I, when I was a little boy uh, growing up, like now I'm like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, I used to pretend that I went and helped poor people, and every time I envisioned it, they were black. So, I, uh, so I've traveled a lot of different places. I've been to Romania. I've been, I've been to a lot of different countries. But I didn't want to go to Africa because I knew that once I went to Africa, it would require something of me that's been brewing since I was a little boy. And I wasn't sure what it was. But I, knew, I, I couldn't tell you what it was, but I could tell you that what it was. I knew, I knew that once I got a hold of... I've always loved black people in, you know, in America. I, like I just... I'm drawn to them, they're, and they're drawn to me. I've always been friends, uh, even when the race we had, and I was, you know, went to high school during the civil rights movement, and blacks and whites didn't get along. But I got along with all the black people in our school. I, I was the only white person that that took black history. I was the only white person in the class, and I just would have always been drawn. And I knew that when I when I went to Africa, I knew that the day I stepped foot on Africa, that it would require something of me, like the Samaritan. No. Yeah, like the Samaritan. Actually, like the Pharisee. I don't mean Pharisee now in a negative sense. I knew that as long as I crossed the street, I wouldn't be responsible for something I didn't really know about. But once I came into contact with the real problem, I would suddenly be responsible for that guy's destiny. And when I got to Africa, I had no emotional... I thought I was going to have this big emotional connect. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. 
I had no emotional connect. I, I do now, because once you get to know people, you know. But when I stepped on the, when I stepped on the continent of Africa, I thought I would have this great emotional connect. I thought I would weep and cry and fall down. I mean, I had this. I really honestly thought that this is going to be a powerful emotional connection. It wasn't. But as I walked around, the Lord said, "These are your people. <laughs> These are your people." History will tell us if you believe me. These are your people. You're responsible for what happens on this continent. Now, I'm sure that the Lord said that to thousands and thousands of people. I understand. I'm not the only one. But how many know that sometimes we're not the catalyst to the people's destiny because we look at the need and we look at what we have and it doesn't feel like we're going to be able to help much. Do you know what I'm saying? And so what I've noticed is this. You know, I've gotten to, uh, in the last, uh, probably especially three years, especially the last three years, I've gotten to know some people who, who we would admire as great women and great men of God. I've gotten to be in their presence and I've gotten to have some relationship with them in a way that I, I never have before. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm hanging out with presidents or something, but I'm hanging out with people that a lot of us would really admire. I, I really admire them. I, like, I've seen them from a distance. I'm like, that person's amazing. And what I've noticed is this, is that they don't have any more to give than I do. They just have faith that their little bit is going to make a big difference. That's what I've noticed. I noticed that, I noticed that the prophets that I hang out with that have, speak, that have spoken to presidents, I have people on our prophetic team that after I get to know these, these people, that in my opinion are on the same level as them. But they just have faith that what they do is going to make a big difference. There's something about a spirit of prosperity that says, I don't have much, but he'll make up the difference. Are you with me? So the Samaritan, I thought the story was better than this, but the, the Samaritan, well, I mean, it, let me finish. You don't know what I mean. A better example, man. This is a great story. Gosh, you can't say that bad stuff about the Bible. I didn't mean it that way. Sorry. It's a great story, Lord. I love your stories. Whatever. Polished I am not. Anyway, you know, the Samaritan, one thing this, uh, the good Samaritan doesn't have is a lot of time. So he takes the guy, he takes him to an inn, you know, to a hotel, and he, bind, you know, he binds up his wounds, takes care of him for the day, and then turns to the innkeeper and says, you know, if, take care of him. Whatever else he needs, I'll just pay for it. And, um, you know, here's a guy, the Samaritan in this story, has money, but he doesn't have a lot of time. And I, I think that's, I don't know, uh, some of, we're all in different places. Some of us, um, you know, spending a day is like spending uh, $100,000 with someone because time is so precious because you're so, you're so busy doing what God calls you to do. Other of us, you know, spending, um, you know, spending $10 is like spending 10000 because just where you are financially. Whatever your deal is, and, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. But this Samaritan guy seems to have money, but he doesn't have time. He doesn't feel guilty about it. He encounters this guy whose need is much bigger than his. I mean, it's like, this guy isn't going to get well in a day. But all he has is a day. So he gives him a day, binds up his wounds, and he has money. So he says to the innkeeper, whatever it takes, you know, when I come back, I'll pay you the full bill. I just love that because the Samaritan has the courage. See, it feels to me like the, the Pharisee and the scribes in, this, in the story, they have the same issue. They don't have whatever it is. Maybe it's time. Maybe they don't have the money. Maybe they don't have the resources. Whatever, whatever it is, they see that the problem is bigger than they're going to time to solve. 
Does this speak to anyone? It's important for us to become a catalyst to people's destiny. Paul takes a hold of of, uh, Barnabas. No, I'm sorry, Barnabas takes a hold of Paul. Here's interesting a comment. Barnabas takes a hold of Paul. They travel together for, I don't know, it, they, I think um, somewhere around eight, nine, seven, eight, nine years they're together. Pretty soon the roles reverse, and uh, Paul is the senior, Barnabas is the second guy. And then an interesting thing happens. They go to, they're, they're doing this world tour, or at least the, the churches that, they're, that they have influence over, and they take Mark with them. Now, this is Mark who wrote the book of Mark. They take Mark with them, and Mark's a, probably a kid. You know, it appears that he's a young man. Maybe, I don't know if he's 17 or 18 or if he's early 30s. But, I mean, he's, a young, he's, he's spiritually a young man. And, so it's, and he's also Barnabas' cousin. So they take, so Paul and Barnabas take Mark with them on this tour. And, you know, when you go with Paul, it's dangerous. It's like going with Tracy Evans. Anyone ever been with Tracy Evans? You don't take a casual trip with Tracy Evans, by the way. When our students want to go with Tracy, I say, okay, well, let's see, we need to have like a little talk. Because when you go with Tracy Evans, Tracy Evans, like, she's like Paul. When she's in places that are dangerous and she has an anointing, I mean, you know, she was locked up for five months in the Philippines. The terrorists locked her up captured her and locked her into a house and threatened to kill her for five months. Now the crazy thing is, what she didn't tell him is, she knew how to get out of there, but she didn't do it because she felt like she was supposed to influence him. That's a crazy story. It's kind of like Daniel. You know, Dan, I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes four boys captive. You know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he thinks he has them, but he doesn't realize his God has him. So, so they go on this tour. Now back to Barnabas and Paul. They go, back, they go on this tour, and when you travel with Paul, you know, he's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, he's been, you know, in prison. And, you know, you read, you read, his, you know, you, you read, you read his commentary on his own life, and it's like, oh, my goodness, you know. He's been stoned, left for dead. You know, at Lystra, they stoned him, and he's left for dead. I mean, you know, this is not a guy that, you, you know, you want to bring to your church, necessarily. And so, and Barnabas is traveling with them. And how many of you know that Barnabas travels with them and Luke travels with them? Luke is a doctor and Barnabas is a son of encouragement. How many of you know when you have a ministry like that, you need a doctor and a son of encouragement traveling with you? And so Mark's with them. And Mark gets afraid and runs off. Like, hello, probably most of us would too. And so later on, like a couple of years later, Paul says, hey, let's go back and visit all the churches that we planted, make sure they're doing good. And Barnabas says, yeah, let's take, let's take Mark. You know, Mark was with us. And, the, and, and Paul says, we're not taking Mark. He's a chicken. He's a coward. I'm not letting cowards go with me. I'm kind of getting this by sort of revelation. And so, <laughs> so they have this argument. They, they're arguing over whether they should take Mark or not. And the argument gets so bad, it becomes the first church split. And Barnabas goes, and Barnabas takes Mark and goes one way, and we don't hear about him anymore because Luke's the writer, and Luke and, and Silas are with uh, 
Paul, and obviously Luke is the one who's uh, narrating the book of Acts, so we don't know what happens with Barnabas and, and uh, Mark. But um, so, so Paul won't have anything to do with him. Paul says, We're not, he's a chicken, he left us. He's, you know, I'm not, I'm not, cowards aren't going with me. No, we can't take him. And Barnabas argues with him. And finally, Barnabas gets so upset, he just leaves him. Or Paul gets so mad, he leaves him, or they agree, or however it happens. But what's really interesting is that at, towards about, about 15 to 20 years later, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this, Luke is with me, he writes to Timothy, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful for service to me. That kind of ticks me off. So like 17, 15, 17 years later, Paul says to Timothy, hey, get Mark. He's really good. He's really good at serving me. I like him. Well, you didn't. You caused a church split 15 years before because you wouldn't take him on a trip with you. And what I'm getting at is this. There are people like Paul who are amazing people and they become a catalyst in some way. But there are Barnabases. And how many of you know that if there's not Barnabas, you don't have the Gospel of Mark and you don't have 14 books that Paul wrote? There are people who were born not so much to be famous, but they're, I'm talking about in heaven, but their fame is in the way that they're a catalyst to other people's destiny. And even in the face of, of, you know, super apostles like Paul, they say, no, I'm taking Mark. Listen, Mark, I'm staying with Mark. And we don't know what happens with Mark, but we know this. Whatever Barnabas did with Mark, it's the same thing he did with Paul because the guy writes a gospel. And there are people in your life who look like failures and all they need is a Barnabas. They need somebody to come along and believe in them. I want to tell you something. I got saved when I realized that Jesus, when I believed in Jesus. But I got changed when I realized that Jesus believed in me. You get saved by believing in Jesus, but you get changed by realizing that He believes in you. There's something about knowing that you're Jesus, the person who loves you so much, actually believes in you. And there's something about, it was John Maxwell who said um, that most people become what the most important person in their life thinks they should become. And I believe that oftentimes God brings those people into our life and they become a prophetic statement, not just a prophetic word, but they become a prophetic statement in our life because God says to to a Barnabas, listen, I want you to stand next to Paul and I want you to, this is what I think about him and this is what I want you to bring out in him and those people become a catalyst for our destinies. That's a good word right there. Jesus developed... An environment. Jesus in, uh, developed this amazing environment. You know that Jesus had faith. <laughs> That's an amazing statement right there. You know, sometimes we relegate faith to accomplishing things. Like we have faith for a mountain move, we have faith for money, we have faith for revival, we have faith for something. But Jesus had faith in every dimension of his life. He believed his father for provision for food. He believed his father that he could walk on water, that he could raise the dead, that he could heal the sick. He believed all that. But you know the thing that's been most profound to me in the last three years? He believed in people before they deserved it. 
He believed in people, and listen to this, he created a culture. He didn't just say nice things to people. You know, sometimes when we think about believing in people, we think that all, only words that we can speak to them are positive. It's almost like, it's almost, uh, it borders on flattery. But I want to tell you something, when you really believe in people, you can tell people the truth in love, and they will change because they know you believe in them. Are you with me? When I really believe in somebody, I know that, listen, I know that once they know that I believe in them, that I have a place in their life that very few people have, and it gives me an opportunity to tell them the things that they really need to know to make adjustments. Not obviously encouraging things, and we've been saying that for 25 minutes, but also the adjustment things that need to happen in their life. I remember one of the most profound uh, uh, times in my life as far as looking back you know how you look back at your life and you see your life in little mountains like you can't sometimes remember all this activity in between but there are certain things you never forget one of the things that I'll never forget was an encounter that I had with Danny many years ago I probably was uh, 15 years ago 16 maybe and um, and uh, we were having lunch together I never forget it we were having lunch I, I can tell you the exact place we were sitting and Danny was talking about the way that my, my life and the way I carried myself affected other people. And it wasn't positive. And he, was, and he was sitting down and he was saying, you know, when you do this and this, you don't realize it, but this is how people, this is how it makes people feel. And this is how they, this is, you are, you are a negative catalyst in people's life. You are actually bringing out the worst in people when you behave like this. Do you remember this conversation? And I was sitting there and I was so broken it was like someone put a mirror in front of my eyes. And for the first time, at least in this area of my life, I saw myself. But you know why I continued to listen? Because I knew that he believed in me. When we got done with this hour conversation, maybe one of the most painful conversations I've ever had in my life, definitely one of the most painful conversations I've ever had in my life was someone who really believes in me. When we got done with this conversation... And I was a basket case. I was a puddle. I was crying at the table. And when we get all done with this conversation, he goes, um, Hey, I want you to preach Sunday. I said, What the heck did he just say? I thought I heard an angel or something. He said, I want you to preach Sunday. I said, You want me to preach Sunday? He said, Yeah. So, okay. And you know what? It was just the exact gesture that I needed at the exact time that says, listen, you have this thing that needs to be removed from your life, a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling, but I believe, I believe in you. Do you know what I mean? When you believe in people, it's amazing how you have an opportunity to say things that they need said in their life that other people can't say. And you know, you know the other thing is? When, you, when people feel like you don't believe in them, it's amazing how you have no influence in their life. If people get the feeling that you don't have much value for them, it doesn't matter. You can say a little thing and they, get, they can get offended. Jesus got all these guys hanging around with him. And he got, and one of the, you know, I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you about his guys. I mean, they're arguing all the time. I mean, who would want these guys? He's got a zealot. He's got a tax collector. He's got a guy who doubts everything. He's got Peter. He's got James and John who are like, 
the, it's amazing that John is called the, the disciple whom Jesus loved because he had such a bad temper that Jesus called them the, thuns, the sons of thunder because of their temper. They were always wanting, they were the ones he wanted to call fire down. And later he's called the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's amazing. But Jesus also has Judas. And I've shared this many times, but it so fits. It says that Judas was pilfering the offerings. Okay? Jesus knows that. And he makes him the treasurer. That is a stunning... Listen, you know how little insights, like once in a while, someone will tell a story. Once in a while, like uh, Bill will tell a story or someone from the pulpit will tell a story. And underneath the story, it unlocks a whole part of their life. And you go, whoa, you got like a little peek into someone's life. I'm like, to me, the fact that Jesus knows the guy is a thief and he makes him the treasurer is such an important peek into the way that Jesus led people. He trusted people. Listen to this. He had faith. And just like he had faith for money, he had faith for miracles, he had faith for healing, he had faith for raising the dead, and you know, the story goes on and on. He had faith for people in which he believed in people, listen to this, before they deserved it. You've got to get that. Before they deserved it. He believes in people before they deserve it, and 11 men become world changers. One guy hangs himself. If you create a culture in which you actually are a catalyst to people's destiny. Listen to this. If you create a culture of faith where you actually believe in people, if you don't have a Judas now and then, you aren't believing in people to the full extent that would create, that would change as many people as been allotted to your care. Because it says that you have reduced... Uh, If you, let's see, the way, if you interviewed people to say, okay, who is it I'm supposed to believe in? Who am I a catalyst to? You would, you would eliminate Judas, but the same screen that elu- eliminated Judas, the qualifications that would, the things, the qualifications that would have disqualified Judas would have also disqualified Peter. Now, I'm not being funny. Remember, there was two people, there was two people who actually denied Christ. And Peter so denied Christ that when Jesus calls his disciples, he says to Mary, he says, go to my disciples and tell them I'm alive and also tell Peter. There was a point in which Peter was not considered a disciple. Either he didn't consider himself a disciple, I don't know, or if the other disciples did not consider him a disciple. But there was a point when Jesus had to say, hey, Mary, when I tell you, tell the disciples I'm alive, make sure you also tell Peter. Because at least she thought that Mary didn't think he was a disciple. Are you with me? So there was two people who denied Christ. And if you develop qualifications about who you're going to pour into by looking at the externals, you would have never, Peter would have never qualified because he has the same struggles that Judas had. Or at least some of the same struggles. Are you with me? And so when you, when you create a culture around you that, that actually becomes catalytic to people if if you're if you don't use if you don't see with God's eyes you will disqualify a whole bunch of people so I want to say this it is it is common to have people that you believe in some of those people will fail 
Some of those people will fail in, in a way that they create their own redemption and they hang themselves. And some of those people will fail. And Jesus said to Peter, you're going to fail, but when you turn around, when you get back up, strengthen your brothers. Some of those people will fail, and, it will, and that, that test will become their testimony. And they'll say, I failed, and it's a testimony to, their gra- to the grace of God. Like Paul said, listen, I am the least of all apostles. I, I persecuted the church. And he goes through this whole list, and he goes, no one, I would have never qualified. But His grace is so sufficient in me that look at what I'm doing. I rock. I was just reading in uh, the verse that um, Eric had us read tonight. He said, listen, Paul says, I can't remember where it was. You had us read tonight. But he said, I'm just telling you this so so that you can be proud of me. So that you can boast in me. Listen, the, everything that I'm doing is a sign of God's grace because no one would have ever chose me. Are you following me? Yeah. And tonight, my, my point is this, is that, is that we need to be a catalyst to people's destiny and there are treasures in people that on the, on the externals, they don't look like treasures. It can look like they're a waste of time. and they can, It can look like they're a black hole. And you all know what I mean. I'm not being cruel. There are people that look like when you, that, that they're going to take so much of your life that you could touch 50 other people. But God wants you to touch them. How do you know if God wants you to touch them? Because when, when you don't cross the street, you carry them with you in your heart. I don't know if you got that. The fact that you didn't respond probably tells me you didn't. There are people that when you see them, you carry them with you. I don't know how to explain it. You think about them when you have no reason to. You see a person on a street. I've had this happen to me. I can't tell you. It's not so much lately, but especially when I was in Weirville. I'd see a person on the street just hitchhiking. I would go home that night, and I would think about them all night. I've seen 50 people on the street. But when I saw that person, for some reason, I can't get them out of my mind. Can't, I didn't have an encounter. God didn't talk to me about them. But I'm, I'm laying in bed at night and I'm thinking about them. wonder why they were in the street. wonder what's going on with them. And then I find that I begin, Lord, if you give me a chance again, I'll, I'll touch them. You know what happens then, right? They're like the yellow Volkswagen. You see them everywhere. Everywhere you go, it's like they're there. It's like... How many know what I'm talking about? It's like... For some reason, you never saw a person before. You see them once. You can't get them out of your mind. And you, you just carry them with you. And, um, okay. I've shared this many times, but I love this. This, this really, really helped me. Allison, um, who's uh, Bill and my uh, editor, she said something to me uh, four years ago. She said, I love to listen to other people's prophecies. I said, you love to listen to other people's prophecies? She said, yeah. I said, Ellison, why? She said, because so I treat them not as they are, but as God sees them, and I invite them into their destiny. What happens when you listen to other people's prophecies? Listen, it doesn't even have to be a prophecy. I... I I, I think the point is, what happens when you begin to see people not as they are, but as God sees them? What happens is, is you begin to create a path for them. What happens when you worked with people as the finished, follow me, I love this statement, I just thought of it. 
What happens when you begin to work with people as if they're the finished product, even though they've just gotten started? It's so amazing because you begin to build a path into the way they think, into the way they behave, and you call them up. You know, one of the struggles I have with uh, American missions, um, not missionaries necessarily, I'm talking about money now, is that we tend to give people a hand out, but we don't get, tend to give them a hand up. And we have this mentality that money solves everything. And, and what happens is, is that we give people money who don't yet have a princely mindset, and the money's you know, a year later the money's gone and there's no change. And people need a hand up. It's, they don't just need a hand out, they need a hand up. And when we see people, not as they are, but as God sees them, and when we see them as the finished work, as their finished work, when we see them, we go, that person's going to be a great preacher. And we begin to, listen to this, more than just saying that person's going to be a great preacher. Follow me for a minute. I'm trying to get a deeper point. When I begin to envision them, I begin to see them the way that God sees them. And I'm talking about envisioning them as the finished product. It is amazing how many stones are removed. I create a highway so that they can come into their destiny because I begin to treat them not as they are, but as I envisioned them. Are you with me? couple of more things. Sometimes where our person is a, we become a catalyst to a culture. Follow me for a minute. I've just been talking to you for 40 minutes about being a catalyst to individuals. But sometimes we're a catalyst to a culture. And God, now this, I'll tell you, I think this is the biggest impact, in my opinion, that, that Bill right now is having on people's lives. That he's a catalyst to a culture. And uh, Paul and Silas are in prison. And um, it's in, uh, I'll just tell you the story for the sake of time, but um, it's in the Bible. I don't even know. I wrote it down someplace. Oh, it's Acts 15. No. Wherever it is. It's in the Bible. Oh, it's Acts. It's Acts. Uh, I don't know where it's at. Whatever. They're in prison. I thought it was Acts 15. Yes, there, it is Acts 15. They're in prison. And it says that they put them in the deepest dungeon. And they're down there and they're singing. They're singing praises to God. And what happens? The jail begins to shake and rock. But, what, but the most important thing isn't that they had an earthquake. But this specific earthquake loosed everyone's bonds and opened the prison doors. Now come on, you couldn't make that happen. It says all the prisoners' shackles fell off. All. That's not a coincidence. And all the prison doors opened. Now follow me. Why did that happen? I believe it happened because when Paul and Silas lived in complete freedom internally, and when they began to sing and praise God, they released what they had internally. What they lived, the environment they lived internally, when they began to sing, it released the environment they lived internally. It released it externally. And because, the, you know what I mean? It's like Paul lived above fear of man. I mean, he was so lived above the fear of man that when they put him in shackles, 
and they and they uh, you know they beat him and and all that stuff. It says every time the, the disciples got beaten, they rejoiced. What's the point? It's like they they got to this place in life where they no longer feared death. Follow me. They no longer feared death. They lost the fear of death, and they were so encouraged. It says that oftentimes they were they would celebrate because they got beaten for the name of of Christ. What do you do with a guy when you can't buy him and you can't kill him? He stepped over this, they stepped over this line and they began, and their singing wasn't like, well, well you know what, we better just encourage ourselves. Silas, uh, strike up the guitar here, let's, let's sing a song. I don't believe it was that. I believe that the sing, their singing hymns was a manifestation of their person. Like they were so at peace and, and because of that, the shackles of everyone around them got released and it was, the, in my opinion, one of the first songs of deliverance in the New Testament where people got totally free. And they became a catalyst to a supernatural environment that filled the room because it followed them. And wherever they went, it wasn't just a personal catalyst, but they became a catalyst to an environment. Are you getting this? They became a catalyst to an environment in which the angels would become synergistic with them. I, I wrote down, I don't have the answer to this, but tonight when we're worshiping, I just had this thought. If we're a catalyst, to, if we're supposed to be a catalyst to people, is it possible that we're supposed to be a catalyst to people in another dimension? I mean, could I create an environment that was angel friendly? Holy Spirit friendly. Could I create an environment that's Holy Spirit friendly? I have another question. Is it possible that I'm supposed to be a catalyst to people who aren't yet born? Let me ask you another question. Is it possible that I'm supposed to be a catalyst to people who aren't yet born and who won't be born before I die? Is there, is there things that I can do to be a catalyst to a legacy and not just a catalyst to history? <laughs> That's a thought. Is it possible that I can take my 2% and somehow take it See, because I have eternal life, is it possible that... Well, let me just explain this. When you receive Jesus, you receive eternal life. That doesn't mean that you're just going to live forever. It means you came into the eternal... You, came, you stepped into eternity. Listen, when you receive Jesus, you stepped into eternity. That's why it says you're seated in heavenly places. You stepped into eternity. Wouldn't it be amazing if you thought in a timeless manner? If God said to you, your great, 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 great grandson, his name's going to be, he's going to be named Jesse. This is what happened with Josiah, right? There shall be a, a man, his name will be Josiah. He will turn back Israel. To, okay. What would happen if the Lord said to you, listen, um, 112 years from now, there's going to be a boy born or a girl born. The boy's going to be named Jesse. Okay, uh, he's going to be uh, president of the United States or whatever. Let's just use it, whatever. He's going to be president of the United States. Now, I want you, okay, now I've just told you about this, that Jesse's going to be president of the United States. I want you to help him. Well, Lord, how would I help him? I mean, I'm living, I'm living here. And he's living 112 years from now. 
he'll not know me. Are you following me? And the Lord says, no, I, I want you to help him become president. Lord, how am I going to do that? Think about the process that you would go through if the Lord gave you a specific person that you were to be a catalyst to who was 150 years from you. And God said, you are to be a catalyst to this person who won't be born until 50 years after you perish, after you die, after you go to heaven. Are you with me? Is that amazing? Let me read you this verse. I'm almost done. Are you guys bored? Have I gone too long? Okay. It's hard to tell when you're preaching. Every preacher knows what I'm talking about. Listen to this. Um, Hebrews 11. Just turn there for a minute. I'll be done soon. Could be a long runway. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell you about uh, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jebeth, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Did you get that? And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also in chains and imprisonment. This is kind of cool. I just thought about this as part of what Bill was talking about. If you, if you receive glory from men, then you've received your full reward. This is kind of cool because these guys, it says... Uh, women received the, their dead back by resurrection as they were tortured, not accepting their release. It's, just God, it's, it, it's as if God said, hey, I'd like to release you. And they said, no, I'll just endure this so I get a bigger, more credit in heaven. Not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Women received, uh, I already said that. Verse 36, others experienced mocking, scourging, just chains and imprisonment. Listen to this. They were sto- stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, listen to this, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be, so apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Did you get that? I mean, here's people who God... We're talking about what would happen if God said, listen, you're going to be a catalyst to someone's destiny 150 years from now. How about this way? God says to them, listen, I'm not going to give you what I promised you because I'm going to include you in the reward that I give to the saints. Are you with me? And the last day saints are going to be the strongest, listen, the least in the kingdom. I mean, the greatest in the... In the I'm sorry, start over. The greatest prophet in the Old Testament was John, but the least in the kingdom was greater than John. So God says, listen, if I reward you now, you'll get this much. But if I reward you, if I gave you the same reward as I'm giving the saints of the highest one, you'll receive a greater reward. So I'm not going to reward you until I give the reward of that the last day's church gets. Are you with me? And so how many of you know that in this case, God says to them, listen, your destiny is tied to people that you'll never see. That's why they have a great cloud of witness surrounding us, because their destiny is in your destiny. 
I remember when I used to run track, I was the fourth fastest man on the track team. We had three faster guys. And when we, when we ran relays, I was actually the, the fifth fastest man. I didn't get to run the relay very often, except for once someone got hurt or got sick. So, but when, when I got to run, I was the fourth fastest man. And, we had the, and at the time, well, when I was on that relay team, we had the fastest uh, man in high school history. His name was Benny Brown. He ran on our team. And we, uh, so, you know, the fastest man runs last. The second fastest man runs first. And the, and the two slower guys run second and third. So the, the two, I think I ran on this relay team once or twice. And when I had the baton to, uh, to Benny Brown, because I was the fourth fastest guy, I usually ran second to last, we were in like fifth place out of eight lanes. But we never lost a, a relay race. I never got rewarded for the place I was in. I always got rewarded for the place he was in. See, if they would have given me a trophy, I would have got honorable mention. But I always got first place when I got the privilege to run because we had Benny Brown. And he was the fastest man in high school history. You've got to understand this. When you got saved, you, came, you got eternal life. When you came into eternal life, you don't even realize that you're responsible for people who are behind you and people that are in front of you. Listen, you've got to get this. You are no longer just for, for responsible for people that you know relationally. You're responsible for people that are in eternity and they're counting on you. And some of them will be born way after you. And you'll not know your na- their names, but you have a chance to prepare for them to not fail. I've got to say that again. You have an opportunity to leave behind a letter. The letter is not written with ink. It's not on a page. It's written in history. And when you, you can leave this letter and you can write it in history so that those who go after you cannot fail. When Solomon, you understand that Solomon wrote Proverbs and he also wrote Ecclesiastes. Ma. Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you know this, but Ecclesiastes was never written to be true. One of the one of the statements in Ecclesiastes is the answer to all things is money. How many of that's not true? Ecclesiastes was written to show you what happens to a man who's the wisest man on the face of the earth, but he's lost relationship with God. How does a man who has the gift of wisdom, how does he think when he loses relationship with God? And you'll notice that many of the statements end with it's all vanity. And the word vanity there in the Hebrew means it's all for naught. And this is one thing that Solomon said. What if I gained all sorts of wealth and wisdom and I pass it on to my son and he's a fool? You'll notice Solomon had no successor. Why? Because he thought like that. He had no faith for a generation he wouldn't see. You're supposed to say, what happens if God is right and we move from glory to glory and faith to faith and there's no end to the increase of his government? What responsibility does that put on me when my great, 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 great grandchildren will be living in a greater glory than I ever knew 
What do I have to do to prepare them for that? What do I have to do? What do I have to do and who do I have to be to be a catalyst to people that the only message I can send them is words and a life, but I will not know them till we both cross over together. That's a good word. so thankful for the people that have been callous in my life I honestly don't know where I would be I know that I'm maybe in some ways you know, an extreme case growing up in a bad home but I just, I, I just listing in my notes people who have been callous to me in my life and this, there's so many people who have been callous in my life to things that I I mean, obviously, some of them are very obvious. I mean, I don't know where I'd be without Bill in my life. I mean, he taught me how, he taught me how to, to love my family. You know, coming out of a broken family and five generations of healthy family. You know, one day, it's funny, Bill, I think somebody was leading, it may have been Bill, and he said, I want you to pray for any unsaved family members. I think somebody was leading and said, I want you to pray for any unsaved family members. And I don't know why, but I, I think Bill, I think I was praying with Bill, and Bill said, "Well, I don't have any unsaved family members, so I'll, I'll have to pray for friends that I know." I'm like, "That's amazing." But you know, Bill and Benny were a catalyst to us having. I mean, I, I mean, we have a great marriage, and all of our kids walk with God today because, um, and probably one of the most primary reasons is because Bill and Benny were in our life showing us how to do family. And I, I mean, that's just the way it was. And all, all, most of us learned, all of us that were been with Bill and Benny, we all admired them so much. I remember that my children knew that we admired Bill and Benny so much that all of our kids were friends. Well, they are still friends, but they were best friends. At one point, they were all best friends. And my son, Jason, would always hang out with Brian. Brian was his best friend. They'd do everything together, inseparable. And Brian would say, uh, Bill would, I mean, sorry, Jason would say, Dad, can I go to such such a place? And I said, No, you can't. And he said, Well, well, uh, Bill's letting Brian go. <laughs> and I'd say, Bill is not your father. I am your father. <laughs> okay, you can go. <laughs> you know, um, Bill is a catalyst to my preaching. We have different styles, but there's, there's. There's no way that I would ever be here. And not just being Bethel. I would never, I would be in the pulpit. I remember that when Bill would preach, it was, you know, my heart would, I guess the way that the disciples said, my heart would burn within me. And I would say, someday I'm going to preach like that. And it was, he was a catalyst to like, wow, people can be real. And I don't know if you know what I mean. Like, I, I love Bill because he's real, and you can feel it when he preaches, and it's, you know, he's always been like that. And so, um, and, you know, and there was, you know, my grandfather was a catalyst to me having a, you know, a brain and, and being loved. And my wife has been uh, such an amazing person in my life. I had a nervous breakdown in the last three and a half years, you know. Uh, she's probably had five or six women in the last couple of years say, you need to write a book about how you helped your husband and lived through 
You know, I had, I had three and a half years nervous breakdown where I, I lost my mind. And, you know, she would, she would be like, honey, you're going to be okay. You're fine. Nothing bad's going to happen. I mean, she would just speak into my life, and she was a callus to my stability when probably many, many people would have gotten divorced in that season. She was just, she just believed in me when I absolutely, you know, I'll tell you how bad it got. If we went out to eat at, you know, we couldn't go in a restaurant because I couldn't sit in a restaurant, but we go through fast food, you know, like, and they, you know, like McDonald's, and they'd say, what do you want? If someone asked me what I wanted, it would lock me up. I could not decide if I wanted a hamburger or fries. I would just sit there. And she'd say, oh, I'll just order for you. I mean, I could not make a decision. I lost all confidence that I could make any decision whatsoever. I couldn't decide what to wear, so I wore the same thing every day. I mean, that's, I just lost all confidence in myself. But she did, never lost confidence in me. All I'm getting at, I'm just giving you examples of like, what happens when people believe in you? You know, you see somebody up front, and maybe you, you admire me, or you admire Bill, or you admire Danny, but there were people who poured into our lives. Bill's dad, I know, poured into Bill's life, and I know that Bill wouldn't be the man that he is his, if his dad didn't believe in him. I mean, when his dad passed on, he said, my greatest encouragement just passed on. Listen, everybody needs people. And you have people around you that need you to believe in them. One last time. You have people around you that need you to believe in them. There are Barnabases that look like Saul's. There are Barnabases, there are Paul's that look like Saul's in your life. There are Peter's that look like Cephas's in your life. Let me get it better. There are Rahab's that look like Rahab's. But they're really Rahab's. (laughs) And these people are waiting for somebody to believe in them. I want to ask you a question. Could it be you? Danny, come and finish this. Thank you.